for this day of life that you've afforded us. We thank you for the fact that, Lord Jesus, you are with us and your Holy Spirit indwells each believer and that you are working in each one of our lives today. We thank you for the freedom we enjoy to meet in this place, and we thank you for your providing this campus in which to meet. And, Lord, we thank you for our children who are meeting in Children's Church and in the nursery, and we pray for those who care for them, that they would just really be able to communicate your love among the children. And, Lord, that all of us would grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for this day of life again. We thank you for this free country. We pray for our country, pray for our president and others in leadership. And, Lord, we live in very adverse, contentious times. And yet, Lord, we know that we as believers are called to be peacemakers. And may our testimony be clear about the Lord Jesus Christ. And thank you for your word in our own language. What a privilege we enjoy. And we know around the world that is not always the case. And we thank you, Lord, for teaching us through the power of your Holy Spirit. And it is humbling to know that you've blessed us with so much in this country. And, Lord, we thank you for our brothers and sisters in Christ in Macau and Hong Kong as our missionaries, Paul and Dana May, who were there preparing for a, a, a big event there. And, Lord, we pray for them for encouragement and for wisdom and peace. And even in the midst of the upheaval in Hong Kong, that they would be protected, Lord, and bring them safely back to us. We thank you, Lord, for each one here. Thank you for our guests who are with us today. And we pray, Lord, that each one of us would be transformed because of this encounter with you, with your word, and with one another. For it's in Jesus' powerful and precious name we pray. Amen and amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. It is good to be with God's people on this Sunday, and being with you all is a privilege for me, and thank you so much. I was thinking this week about how uh, athletics teach us a lot about the spiritual life. Have you ever thought about that? Remember the Apostle Paul uses the Olympic Games, essentially, as teaching mechanisms about running the race of faith, and we've been talking about discipleship, and uh, I was thinking about how athletics teach us a lot about uh, training, about perseverance, about stick-to-itiveness, about teamwork. And uh, so all of those things about the athletic field can teach us very a lot. I'm still processing. I'm not sure what the Washington Huskies and the Ducks are teaching us today. But uh, maybe, yeah, I hear some booing out there. But uh, some, some of you may have some insights about some metaphors about what we learn from that particular contest that occurred yesterday. But I was thinking about the whole issue of teamwork, and I was reading an article by John MacArthur. Some of you may be familiar with him, a pastor from Southern California. And uh, he was quite an athlete in his college years, in his day. And uh, he writes these words. He said, I learned a, a vital spiritual lesson while participating in a track meet during my college years. He uh, competed in the 4 by 400 meter relay, uh, and he said at the Orange County Invitational one year, he said, our strategy was very simple. The first guy off the blocks was their fastest runner. He was the sprinter, and he would go as fast as he could around and then hand off the baton, and John MacArthur was next for the next leg of this relay. And his job was to run without dropping the baton and uh, to go as fast as he could to hand off the baton well to the next runner in the third leg of it. And uh, John MacArthur relates that uh, there was a perfect baton passed to him, and then he ran really fast. They were still in first place when he got to the third man, uh, and he passed off the baton to the third one. 
And as he went around the curve, this third guy went, and about halfway around the curve, he stopped. He sat down on the grass, and, and the race was over for his team. And the, all of his teammates ran over to see what was wrong. They thought he pulled a hamstring or some other injury. Uh, and they all ran across there to see what, if he was rin- wincing in pain and what was going on. But he wasn't. He was just sitting there passively. And they anxiously asked him, what happened? Are you hurt? And he said, no, I'm okay. I just didn't feel like running. How would you like to be on that guy's team, right? Uh, MacArthur says that my teammates and I said the same thing. You can't do that. Do you realize the effort we have all put into training for this? You're not in this by yourself. And he goes on to state, he says, I've often thought about that moment in relation to our responsibility as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are supposed to take the truth that was handed down from us, from our ancestors, in the Christian faith and run with it, not aimlessly, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, but always pressing toward the goal, Philippians 3, so that we can hand off the faith intact and uncorrupted to the next generation. And that was a story from the athletic field, but I think it has great emphasis for us today as we come to Psalm 124. If you take your copy of Scripture and turn to the Psalms, we'll continue our study in the Psalms of Ascent. If you're new with us, we've been going through this series on the Psalms of Ascent, as they are called, from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, and we're taking a psalm per Sunday. And looking at these psalms, which were really also called the Pilgrim Psalms, remember that the ancient Israelites were commanded by God in Exodus to go up to the Temple Mount, to go up to Zion, Mount uh, Hermon, or, or uh, uh, Jerusalem there, and to worship at the temple. In David's time, it was the tabernacle on the Temple Mount, and then Solomon was used by God to build the temple, the first temple. But uh, adherents of Judaism were called to go up three times a year, and they would go up at Passover in the spring, Pentecost in the summer, and the Day of Atonement in the fall to worship. And this was the command of God because uh, Mount Zion or Jerusalem represented the place where God resided then all of these Jewish people recognized that they would go and worship in God's very presence. Of course, in the church age, in the day you and I live, uh, we can worship anywhere. We are not called to physically go to and make a pilgrimage to a certain geographical location uh, because uh, we are uh, believers, we are uh, saints, we are believer priests, and so we can worship anywhere. Remember, Israel was, in the Old Testament, was an ethnic group. It was local geographically, and it was to testify to the surrounding pagan nations of its faith in Yahweh, in the God of the Bible. And yet today in the church age, the church is all over the world. We are scattered among all tribes, tongues, and nations, and uh, that's the difference. And we are to testify and to show that we belong to Jesus where we're at and what we're doing. But in Psalm 124, this continues with this pattern. Remember, in uh, this pattern of uh, one psalm will be a psalm of distress or despair, and then the next psalm is confidence, and then the third psalm will be security. And we see this pattern in the first four sets of three of these psalms. And this Psalm 124 is a psalm of confidence. Let me read it for us. If you would stand, if you're able, as an act of worship, Uh, And uh, we will read this psalm. I will read it for you. Psalm 124, a song of ascents of David is the ascription for us. Had it not been for the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, 
Had it not been the Lord who was on our side, when men rose up against us, they would have swallowed us alive. When their anger was kindled against us, then the waters would have engulfed us. The stream would have swept over our soul. The raging waters would have swept over our soul. Verse 6, blessed be the Lord who has not given us to be torn by their teeth. Our soul has escaped as a bird out of the snare of the trapper. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Heavenly Father, we pray that you'd use this word today to teach us today and that you would apply it as you see fit. For it's in Jesus' powerful name I pray. Amen and amen. You may be seated. You know, we live in a day and age and... uh, Psalms here, the Psalms of Ascent, especially as these pilgrims journeyed up to Jerusalem to worship God in his presence, as believers in Jesus Christ, as the church in this church age, we worship here today and we are being transformed because God is faithful as he transforms us with the application of the word, the power of the Holy Spirit, and changes our lives from day to day if we are engaged in his truth and submissive to his will as he teaches us through the day. But the Psalms of Ascent are a historical fact. They're usually based in a historical event, and they're Hebrew poetry, which reflect uh, some of the things that these people went through, but also serves as a model and even a metaphor for the Christian life today as we are on this journey together. This Psalm 124 is a psalm of thanksgiving, is the form that it's in, And it's a community thanksgiving, and it's not about individuals, but it's about a community of faith gathering together and uh, worshiping God himself. And so we as a community of faith are gathered together. Yes, individually, you're all important, but the greater importance is this collective uh, corporate entity called the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are one part of that church. We are a local expression of that as well as some other local fellowships within our area. But we see in the inscription here that it's a song of a sense of David. King David is ascribed to. By the way, in the Hebrew Bible, uh, these inscriptions in our English Bible look like a separate little title that maybe the editors put there, but they are an ancient inscription. It's hard to date when these inscriptions were placed before these psalms, but the Hebrew Bible takes them as part of Scripture itself. And so they are important because sometimes they tell us who wrote the psalm, who wrote this poetry that God used, or uh, the place or the event or whatever. But uh, they're important to pay attention to them. We see it's a psalm of David. And in this, we know something about the event. It could have been a number of different events in David's life that he's writing about, but I like to think it's probably out of 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 17 through 25. The Philistines, the uh, classic arch enemy of Israel in the Old Testament, had already defeated Saul and his armies. And Saul and his son Jonathan, who would have been heir to the throne, are both dead And David has ascended by God's hand to the kingship or to the throne of Israel. The Davidic throne has been established, and the Philistines are trying to destroy Israel. Sounds very contemporary, doesn't it? And so uh, Israel is on the edge, and they are young with a young king just starting, and the Philistines attack uh, Jerusalem And they are repelled. And David depends on God for this. But it's probably that time when things didn't look too rosy on the outlook for David or the people of Israel. They were in danger from this attack. And God protected them. And so this is a poetic 
description of that historical event, but it's general enough it could apply to many other uh, events in life where there's much adversity and difficulty. And so this uh, group of believers, uh, these people, these adherents of Israel, are gathered together corporately to sing this praise. And remember, they're walking up. Song of Ascent means going up. And they're going up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is the highest city topographically in that part of the world. And so they would always have to go up from their villages, their farms, their towns, and other places around the nation of Israel to go up these three times per year to worship. And as they went, remember, they didn't have air-conditioned tour buses. They had to walk or ride in a cart or on a donkey And they would sing these songs as they went up in family groups and in uh, tribal groups. And and they would go up and sing these songs as they went uh, up to Jerusalem. And it would be an encouragement to them. And so in Psalm 123, it's about distress. They are held with contempt. The nations seek to destroy them, but that contempt turns into anger in Psalm 124. And so it's outright opposition to who and what they are. I was thinking about this uh, in verse 1. We see that had it not been the Lord who was on our side, twice it talks about the Lord who is for us. The Lord who is for us. And this is the proper name for God. We pronounce it Yahweh. The New, uh, King James translates it as Jehovah. But it's the name that was revealed to Moses clear back in Exodus chapter 3. We call it the proper name of God in the Old Testament. And, uh, but it says, God is for us, two times there. And then at the end, in verse 8, it says, he is our help. God is for us. He is our help. And for some people, those are red flags. Uh, because I stand up here very confidently declaring that God is for us. God is our help. And then I know uh, what some people think. And I know what some people ask me afterwards and later, which is fine. I encourage people to ask me questions because I have an answer to every question as long as I can say, I don't know. Uh, And I find I say that a lot. But uh, these tend to be red flags because the Lord is for us. His strong name is our help. Uh, And, you know, obviously some people want to say, be more careful with your pronouns. You know, not our, yours, that's fine. But I don't find it that he's my help, that he is for me. And then they usually relate uh, some events in their life or what they're going through at the moment, case histories of family tragedy, career disappointments, pessimistic recounting of world events, how terrible everything is. And the concluding line is a variation of the same theme. How can you stand up there and say that God is for me and God is my help when it doesn't seem like it, okay? And just to be fair, I've been there too. I mean, I'm not, I have not arrived. I'm on this journey with you. But uh, in my role and uh, in where I'm at, I'm put in the the spot of being God's defender. Uh, And sometimes that's not such a great place to be. Uh, As uh, Eugene Peterson writes uh, on this passage, he says, I'm expected to explain God to his disappointed clients. I am thrust into the role of the clerk in the complaints department of humanity. Asked to trace down bad service, listen sympathetically sympathetically to aggrieved patrons, try to right any mistakes I can, and apologize for the rudeness of the management. Uh, But if I accept any of these assignments, Peterson goes on to say, I misunderstand my proper work, for God doesn't need me to defend him. And I would agree with that. He doesn't need me to be the press secretary, 
explaining to the world that he really didn't mean to say what everyone thought they heard when he talked to Job and else other people, you know. But the proper work of us who named the name of Christ, for those, those of us who have believed in him for everlasting life, is not necessarily to be a defender and an arguer, but it is simply uh, the fact <clears throat> that we are supposed to be witnesses, not make apologies for God. Psalm 124 is an excellent model of this. It does not argue God's help. It does not explain God's help. It is a testimony of God's help in the form of a song. The song is so vigorous and so confident, so bursting with what can only be called a reality that so fundamentally has changed our approach and our questions. The longer, no longer does it seem to be of the highest priority to ask, why did this happen to me? Uh, why do I feel, feel left in the lurch? Instead, we ask, how does it happen that there are people who sing with such confidence? God's strong name is our help. The psalm is data that must be accounted for. The data are so solid, so vital, have so much substance, and are so much more interesting than the things we hear through the day that it must be dealt with before we can go back to our complaints. If God had not been for us, and then altogether Israel sing out, if God hadn't before us when everyone went against us, the witness is vivid and should be contagious in our lives. One person announces the theme in verse 1, probably the leader of each one of these groups that's going up to Jerusalem, let Israel now say, and he told them what to say, and they respond with these same words. He announces the theme, everyone joins in. God's help is not a private experience. It is a corporate reality, not an exception that occurs among isolated strangers, but the norm among the people of God. And if there's anything I can just reinforce today is that, yes, we are all individuals, but yet Americans are very individualistic, and we usually think everything is about us, and yet God is building his church, he's promised to build his church, and to bring us to consummation and completion, and we are part of this reality together organically united because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, because of the blood of Christ. This psalm is a beautiful and moving psalm, really, when you really analyze it. And there are four images that show up. Remember, this is Hebrew poetry, so he uses figures of speech to describe what could have happened here. And he uses four Im Im images to answer the what-if question. Some of your translations, it begins with, if God had not been on our side, or if the Lord had not been on our side. That little word, I-F, if, uh, New American Standard has it, had it not been for the Lord. You know, and I don't know if you've ever played the what-if questions. You know, what if this, what if that? You know, what if I hadn't taken that job? Or what if I had taken that job? Or what if I had married this person? What if, I had, if I'd married this person? On and on. You can go all day, and it's kind of a senseless exercise, but here there are four images that David lays out for us. The first one is found in verse 3. And it's basically, beware of the dragons because you are crunchy and taste good with ketchup. Okay? I borrowed that phrase from uh, Susan McMinn. She's actually the one who wrote, do not meddle in the affairs of dragons for you are crunchy and taste good with ketchup. But in verse 3, it says that these men rose up against us. And if you think of the historical setting, perhaps the Philistines 
or Philistines is the more correct pronunciation, then they would have swallowed us alive. And that's the picture of an enormous dragon or a large sea monster. Think of Jonah swallowed alive by this sea monster, and ultimately they are symbols of evil. And who can stand against a dragon? Now, we adults, we know dragons are mythological and they, you know, they've been invented. And, but children know better, don't they? they? They think there really are dragons. And imagine that monster, if there was such a thing roaming the earth today with fire and, and gigantic jaws and a serpentine tail and armor for skin. And, and who can stand against that? And that's David's point here. Who could stand? And in that time against the Philistines, who could stand? They were like going to eat them right up. The enemy was fierce. And if God had not intervened, we would have been devoured by the fierce foe, the psalmist says. The foe could have been any number of things. The Philistines, other examples, threats to David, maybe even the Babylonians. But we need to remember that we have a fierce foe also, and it is beyond any evil dragon that we can conjure up and imagine in children's literature. Remember what the Apostle Peter wrote about in First Peter, his first letter. He says, Satan prowls around like a roaring lion looking for somebody to devour. And that is the picture of being devoured by the symbol of evil, by evil itself. Surely we say, if the Lord had not been on our side, the devil would have swallowed us up. And for Christians in the church today, we need to recall that, that the Satan is active and living. He is not all-powerful, remember that, but he is very smart. He is crafty, and he would swallow us up, so beware of the dragon. And David is saying that because God has rescued us, that didn't happen. What a wonderful thing. The second image we see is breathing underwater is difficult unless you have gills or oxygen tanks, basically. And it's the whole picture of a flood in verse 4. When the waters have engulfed us, the streams would have swept over our soul, then the raging waters would have swept over our soul. He's using this picture of the floods in the Middle East in the desert, down these rivulets, and when there was a big storm, even though it was a desert-like area, it would rise in minutes, and the flood would submerge its victims. Jesus, when he was teaching about not building your house on the sand was probably teaching and thinking of a similar situation where a flood would come in suddenly. It's a frequent figure in the Old Testament, sudden life-threatening dangers in the dry, rugged mountains of Palestine. And surely, if the Lord had not been on our side, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we don't know what if could have happened without God protecting us and providing us a solid protection, a solid foundation of building our lives. We would have been engulfed many times by this life's quick and unexpected tragedies, wouldn't we? We never know what comes. Uh, you know, we don't know what's going to happen this afternoon or next week or today. Uh, if we're building on Jesus, he is the rock when trouble comes. And in verse 4, not only is <clears throat> it the waters would have engulfed us, the streams would have swept over our soul. It's another element of this image, of this picture of what God rescued the people of Israel from. And uh, our troubles are like that. We're submerged by troubles, buried by them, we might say, but then this is like being hit by a semi-truck and left on the side of the road, just sudden, instant weight that mangles us, those unforeseen tragedies and adversities that come into our lives. And then verse 5, 
where it says the raging waters would have swept over our soul, this picture of water like a, a tsunami sweeping over everything instantaneously and suddenly engulfs and destroys and sweeps everything away before us. And some of you have experienced that in your lives with everything suddenly been swept away, everything you've been counting on for sure and necessary for your well-being. Can we not say if the Lord had not been on our side, we have been swept away all the time? The only reason we have survived is because Jesus Christ has set our feet on the rock and established our goings out and goings in forever. And so those two images is what David is talking about. And then he transitions in verse 6, and he talks about the last two images in this poem. He's thinking about God's deliverance rather than reflecting on what would have happened if God had not been on our side. In verse 6, we see that there are predators all around us, and we are the prey. Look at verse 6, blessed be the Lord who has not given us to be torn by their teeth, torn by their teeth. And that is a picture of an animal actually shredding its prey and grinding on the bones and tearing it all apart. And that's what uh, King Darius expected. Remember when he threw Daniel into the lion's den, the next morning he went out and he expected just to see the, just the remains of Daniel and his, his, his partners there. And yet that's not what happened. God rescued them. He stepped in and rescued them. If the Lord had not been in our side, our enemies would have ground us to pieces and recognize that. We still, the church has enemies around the world. And the fourth image is found in verse 7. There are snares everywhere. Our soul has escaped as a bird out of the snare of the, trap, or of the trapper. Our snare, the snare is broken and we have escaped. And it's like a bird caught in a snare and it can't get away. And that's the picture, and that's where Israel was. If it had not been the Lord, they could have been snared. Our enemy sets snares for us. Our enemy of our soul, Satan himself, sets snares for us. Those images represent just physical troubles, but what about spiritual troubles? What about spiritual troubles? If Jesus had not died in our place, taking our punishment upon himself, we would be under God's wrath and judgment and suffer for our sins forever. Instead, we can echo what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. I want you to remember that, memorize that. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so what, that is the certainty, the what-if questions become certainty when we analyze it. Uh, the seminary I went to, the founder of that seminary in 1927, Lewis Berry Chafer, uh, by the late 1940s, wrote a magnificent systematic theology, uh, eight volumes, and is so rich that uh, I read through parts of it from time to time. And as I thought about uh, what if the certainty of our faith, you know, the certainty of our faith answers these things, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, there's one portion of that systematic theology, I think it's volume seven, or yeah, I think it's volume seven, he talks about salvation and that section is entitled, The Riches of Divine Grace. And under that section, he lists 33 theological assurances for the believer in Christ that you have received because you've believed in Jesus for everlasting life. Let me read a few of them. You are in the eternal plan of God. You are redeemed. You are reconciled to him. 
You are related to God through his satisfaction. You are forgiven all of your trespasses and sin. You are vitally conjoined to Christ. You are free from the law. You are children of God. You are adopted, accepted by God in Christ Jesus. You are justified, declared righteous, made nigh. And on it goes, just like waves of the sea washing over us. I've often thought I should spend 33 Sundays and preach through each one of these things, which I may do. It is good stuff. But think about the certainty of all of that evidence that God gives us in his word if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. And also, what if the certainty, if, what if God did not intervene to keep you on the path of the Christian journey of discipleship? We would be like, uh, you know, remember Peter when he fell away and uh, Jesus interceded for him when he denied Christ those three times. And then he says uh, in Luke 22, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to sift you as wheat, but I prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. And it's interesting that in that passage, Jesus does not call uh, Peter by the name he was given, Peter, which means rock. He calls him Simon, his old name, uh, to call attention to his weaknesses. All of us are weak. All of us cannot do this on our own. In fact, the Christian life is not just hard. It is impossible without the power of the Holy Spirit. Also, the certainty that what if God did not preserve our work for Jesus Christ? It would all be for nothing. I think one of the big things about life itself is what is the meaning? What is the meaning of this existence, this time here on earth? And it was uh, our lives to be without any meaning unless it was for Jesus Christ. You can accomplish all sorts of things in the world, gain great wealth, great power, great prestige. And yet unless it's for Jesus, it's all going to burn up. It's all going to go away. Remember Moses, after all his labors, he prayed in Psalm 90, establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands, which has the idea of it is something of eternal value. And then what if God did not preserve us from death? When we think about death, remember death means separation, and there is physical death where we're separated soul and spirit from the physical body. But then there is also spiritual death, those who are separated from God himself because they never believed in Jesus for everlasting life. Death, too, is sometimes in the Old Testament pictured as a flood rising up to engulf the living and carry them away. The Bible views death as the mighty enemy, but God promises to walk through us through the death's waters. And more than that, he promises a resurrection beyond. For believers in Jesus Christ, we have a future and a hope, a place where there's no more sin forever, no more tears forever. It's hard to imagine, isn't it, where we will be with Jesus Christ. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of death is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory even through our Lord Jesus Christ. King David wrote, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. And these are promises and truths to remind ourselves of and claim, especially if we're going through difficulty, adversity, trauma, pain, and sorrow. Is God never leaves us or forsake us. Rabbi Zacharias, some of you may recognize that name. He's on the radio, I think, quite a bit. He's a philosopher, an apologist, evangelist. But he wrote these words, Faith is confidence in the person of Jesus Christ and in his power, so that even when his power does not serve my end, my confidence in him remains because of who he is. 
Let me repeat that. Faith is confidence in the person of Jesus Christ and in his power so that when his power does not serve my end, my confidence in him remains because of who he is. Those cries of deliverance lead us to the second half of Psalm 124, which is really a declaration of thanks to God for his deliverance. Look at verse 6 again. Blessed be the Lord. Blessed be the Lord. There are some connecting words when we think about this theology here or this description. In the English, we have these connecting words, if, then, but, and therefore. If, then, but, and therefore. Now think of that connected in a sentence like this. If the Lord had not been on our side, then we would have perished, but the Lord has been on our side, therefore we will praise him. That's a biblical way of thinking. If if the Lord had not been on my side, then I would have perished utterly, but the Lord is on my side and will continue to be. Therefore, I will praise him. Praise the Lord that we were not torn apart by his teeth. And so we can praise him because he is good in what he's doing. He is for us. That may be a concept you have never heard, but God is for us. You can trace that statement throughout the Psalms. I think Psalm 56 is where I first ran across it. Here it's not, it doesn't say that word, but that's what he says. He is our, had it not been the Lord who is on our side. Now don't mistake it. The Lord is not for our sin, but he is for you. He is for us. He wants his best for us. And then the f- closing verse, our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. There are three important emphasis in this one verse. Our help is in the name of the Lord, the name of the Lord. It is a strong name. Names in the Old Testament reflect character, and that's why God has so many names in the Bible because it reflects a portion of his character. But remember, God is love. That encompasses all his character. Other people may offer us help, and that's a great thing. And we dare not uh, turn to them for the the sufficiency that we need. Only the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, is adequate for our weaknesses. He is omniscient. Omniscience is that theological term that God knows everything, past, present, and future, contrary to what some evangelicals say. But he is omniscient. He always knows what you need, and he knows it perfectly. He is omnipresent. It means that he is everywhere present. He is always there when we need him. We don't need to go to Jerusalem. We don't need to go to a priest. He is always there waiting for us to address him. He is omnipotent, which means all-powerful, and he can do what needs to be done. And finally, he is very loving and gracious. He always has our spiritual best interest at heart. With a God like that, why would we trust other things for our sufficiency and lean on other people? Remember, we've been talking through this series about the sovereignty of God, that he's in control of all things. And this sovereignty is carried out through a a theological term called his providence. Providence is more than a town on the East Coast. Providence is a theological term. It's a great name for a town, by the way. But God's providence is his constant care for and his absolute rule over all his creation for his own glory and the good of his people. And those things are never contrary to one another. He's always working for his glory and for our good. We need to remember that. And then secondly, this emphasis in this verse 8, not only the name of the Lord, but our help is in the name of the Lord. This help, this assistance, everything we need or can possibly need is found in God. And particularly when we rejoice that our help is in God because we are helpless beings. 
Charles Haddon Spurgeon, a preacher from another era, observed that in God we have help as troubled sinners being delivered from the punishment of guilt and sin. We have help as dull scholars being taught to know and how to know and understand God's word. We have help as trembling professors being witnesses to his gospel. He gives us the words to speak, blesses our testimony in the lives of others. We are inexperienced travelers on life's journey, being guided on the right paths and kept from perilous pitfalls and wasteful detours. And we have help as feeble workers, being unprofitable servants at best, but God is blessing the work of our hands and making it of lasting value. It always staggers me that God uses us as frail, goofed-up human beings to carry out his will here on earth in the church. You know, he could send down the angels, an army of angels, and, you know, Michael would certainly be a much better preacher than I am. And he can do things like that. But he chooses to invite us to worship him and to be used by him. And then thirdly, the next emphasis in this verse is our, O-U-R, our help is in the Lord. He's a personal God. He's not some God who's far off and who just wound this earth up and let it go. But he is our God. He is personal We have our own help. We have tested God's word and have found God to be everything he has described himself to be. We have looked at the past and testify, oh, yeah, I see that, how God helped me in my life, how he worked in me and and guided me. And we look at the present and assert the Lord is my help even this day. We don't have to make an appointment. And we look in the future and affirm my Lord will be my help forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord And why should we trust him? Because he is the creator God, the maker of heaven and earth. Can you imagine the power that he spoke all of this into existence with a word? He didn't, in his workshop, have to have a bunch of little angels going around hammering stuff together. He spoke it with his word. And Jesus Christ sustains everything with a word. The next beat of your heart, the next breath you take, the next day we have is sustained by Jesus Christ. And so we look to God for protection and power, and rely upon his provision of grace and merited favor. There's a book entitled uh, The Healing of the Masculine Soul. It's written by Gordon Dalby, and he says that when Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as the helper, he uses the Greek word paraclete. You may have heard that, but the Greek word for the Holy Spirit is paraclete. And uh, that was an ancient warrior term, actually. Uh, The Greek soldiers, they went in the battle in pairs. And so when the enemy attacked, they could draw together back to back, covering each other's blind side. One battle partner was the paraclete, the one drawn alongside. The Holy Spirit is uh, the third person of the Trinity, and he has roles to do. And he is our paraclete, our comforter, our protector, our guide, our teacher. Our Lord does not send us into this journey of the Christian faith alone. That's why Paul tells us in Corinthians that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. Can you imagine the very divine being, the Holy Spirit, indwells you? I don't know how that works, but he is the one who teaches us, guides us, loves us, cares for us. He is our comforter. He is our battle partner in this journey and covers our blind side and fights for our well-being. And he knows what you're going through, everything you do. So you're not in this race alone. This is essentially a relay race because this generation will pass off the scene eventually and who will inhabit Grace Point Church? You know, that is a question to ask yourselves because there were generations that went before us 
who passed on the faith to you. And you can probably name some people, not just in this church, but in your experience, who have gone on to heaven, but who passed on the faith to you. And it's like that relay race. The baton has been passed to us. And are we running the leg of the race that we've been given? Are we running well in the power of the Holy Spirit with great, clear vision of on, on Jesus Christ? And when it's time to pass off the baton to the next generation, will we do it graciously and, and with great skill? We, I pray we do by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you do not leave us alone and we're not running in the race of the Christian life by ourselves, but you provide us with the Holy Spirit for empowering us and giving us wisdom and encouragement and perseverance in this life. We thank you for David and thank you for him, your using him to write this psalm and many others and this bit of poetry which teaches us about Uh, the fact that had it not been for you, we would be in a desperate situation. And Lord, we thank you that you are an almighty God and that you love us and care for us. In Jesus' powerful name I pray, amen.